If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter. While you're turning there, I'll let you know that I got a good bit of ribbing uh, after my sermon last week and my soapbox about us always looking to the past, always looking back to the good old days that may not have ever really existed because that's what I do all the time. And people who know me know that's what I do in the historical books that I read. And then my daily obsession with at least one episode uh, of the Andy Griffith show. (laughs) I got to go to Mayberry every day. It's just what I have to do. So last week's soapbox has now turned into this week's sermon. Because I, along with all of you here, we need to be not just content with when we are right now. We have to be excited about when we are because of who we are. See, I can't go back. You can't go back. We can't go back to what we might rightly or wrongly believe was a better time, an easier time, a simpler time, a more Christian time. And so I've got to continually challenge myself and you as well to live here and now. And you and I need to be excited Excited to serve God in this generation, our generation. Hope that's what will happen this morning as we come to the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you uh, to stand as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20 through 22. This is the Word of the Lord. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers went down into Egypt, were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading of your holy word. We've just read words, Lord, inspired by your spirit. Words that you have preserved through these thousands of years for your glory and for our good. And so we pray now that through your word and the power of your spirit working together, we will be transformed into the people that you call us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, if you were here, you know, we looked at verse 21. And we looked at the the present tense nature of it. God, He is your praise. He is your God right now. As these people stand on the banks of the Jordan River, almost ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land that God has given to them, He is their praise. Once they arrive in that land, once they settle there and live their lives, all of their lives, their family life, their commercial life, their social life, their worship life. He is their God. Always present tense. Whatever is great about their life, whatever is good about their life, the best part of their life, what they brag about most in their life is God. He is my praise. He is my God. Always in the present tense. And that's what it means for God to be your God. That's what it means for God to be your praise and my praise. 
When you look at your life right now, whatever is good about it, whatever is praiseworthy about it, whatever is admirable about your life or, or true in it, holy, pure, wherever those ornaments are in your life that, that decorate your life, ornaments of grace and goodness, those come from the Lord. Those come from the Lord, and we are to reflect the glory back to Him. And if you're not ready to make that claim in your life, that all of that, all that goodness, all of who you are, is from the Lord, if you still uh, retain the need to, to take some credit for it. Well, you know, I do want credit because I, I, I do this thing. I, I'm good at that. Really, I am a good person. If you still need to retain some of the credit for yourself, then you are still not fully embracing the gospel. You're not fully seeing your need for Jesus. And your life is not in alignment with Scripture like this one that says that God, not you, but God is your praise. You know, the Apostle Paul makes a shocking statement in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. This is what he writes. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now imagine if a political leader or even a Christian leader made a statement like this in front of a large group of people that they weren't forced to make because they'd gotten caught doing something bad. You know, our reputation is so important. And leaders, well, leaders are supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, above average. These aren't supposed to struggle with the same things that quote-unquote common people struggle with. Leaders want people to think well of them. Well, Paul was certainly a leader, an accomplished man, brilliant scholar, recognized to be a rising star headed right to the very top of his field. So making a statement like this could jeopardize his position could jeopardize what people thought of him, could jeopardize whether people wanted to follow a man or not who said, there's nothing good in me. Especially when he goes on to write in that same chapter in verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Imagine confessing that out loud. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What is Paul's motivation? Why would he write these words? I can understand it, really. If Paul were standing on the back of a wagon, and he gathered this great crowd of people around him, and he stood up and he began to speak, Now listen to me, listen to me. For years and years I suffered from this terrible condition. But then I found this. you know. And he holds up a bottle of an elixir, and he said, Once I found this. I became completely cured, completely well. And then if people gathered around and began buying every bottle that Paul had, and Paul laughed all the way to the bank, I could understand. Make a statement like that about yourself, get the money, and go. But what's Paul's gain for writing this? The only help he offers for his condition is the gospel, and the gospel is absolutely what? Free, right? F-R-E-E. The gospel is for free. So when Paul writes, I know nothing good dwells in me, he writes it because it's the truth of God. And he writes it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And only when you and I can 
admit that it's completely true. Only when we can relinquish any claim to personal goodness will God become our praise. Because God is the praise of every single person who understands who they really are, who knows that God would love them anyway. How could God not be your praise when you know He loves you anyway? That's why fully embracing the gospel is so important if you and I want to effectively serve God right now in our generation. The gospel makes us free not to to, to worry about us. It's not about us. It's not about our glory. It's not about our reputation. It's not about our goodness. It's not about what other people think about us. It's about God and who He is. So when we are embracing the gospel, not only for our salvation, but for every day of our lives, then you and I can get busy for the Lord in this generation. That's what we need to be gripped by and excited by this morning. How is God going to use us? What is God going to accomplish through us right now? Look again at verse 21. He is your praise. He is your God. And then the verse moves to the past. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. You see, that's the purpose of the past. It gives us confidence for what God can do right now. And so we look backward. That's okay. But we don't live backward. We live now. We serve now because God has demonstrated over and over and over again in the past what he can do. Look back at the great and awesome wonders God has done. Very often in my life I hear Christians quoting Jeremiah 6.16 as a justification for why, well, really we should live in the past. We, We should go back. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where uh, where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But listen, this is not a call to live backward. What are those ancient paths? An ancient path is the unchanging word and way and path of God. And so the verse isn't calling us to escape to the past, but to look to the past of God. Your word is a light unto my feet. You know, it's a light unto my path. And all generations, in every generation, look back to see who God was, who, who he is, and he always will be. Scripture calls God the ancient, the ancient of days. Not because God is old, not because he's antiquated, not because he's a relic or because he is out of date. Daniel chapter seven thirteen. God gives Daniel a vision. It's on page 631 in your Bible if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 7. In verse 13, Daniel has this vision and he says, I I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to this one who came was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, the ancient of days was ancient, 
when he gave Daniel this vision. But he wasn't out of date and he wasn't irrelevant because he had a vision for the future. God is still cutting edge and he's still at the top of his game and he is still at work fulfilling this grand vision that he has put into place, working in the present to bring it into reality. A vision that's consistent throughout time. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sounds an awful lot like Daniel chapter 7. When we look back and see the character of God, what he has done, the wonders that he has performed, they're just representative of what he can do and continues to do on behalf of his people. What God has done becomes our greatest hope for the present and the future. You know, I, like everyone else, have concerns about the mayor of Houston subpoenaing the sermons of five Christian pastors in the Houston area. I have concerns about that. Now they've changed it to the speeches. They're subpoenaing the speeches of these pastors. But one of the greatest concerns that I have is the reaction of Christians to what's going on. Go online and read the posts and you'll read some very harsh words, some very ugly words from Christians hoping that the mayor burns in hell. And you'll read words of really unleashed anger, but really unleashed fear as well. Many people, as I've followed this story through the week, they believe that this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end. If they can subpoena sermons from pastors, this is the beginning of the end. Listen, I appreciate our freedom as much as anyone else. And I appreciate those who defend and protect our freedoms. But only, but only if we use those freedoms to serve the Lord and to get the gospel out right now in our generation. If we don't use the freedom that God has given us for that purpose, if we squander the freedom that God has given to us, then why should we have it? If removing those freedoms from us is what God deems necessary for the good of his people and for the growth of his people and for the advance of the gospel, and by the way, just as a side, History seems to indicate over and over again that when the church grows the most in which when the church is the strongest, it comes at times when the church is not free during times of persecution. But if removing those freedoms is what God deems necessary, then why should they not be removed? And so instead of fear and anger, instead of fear and anger, there should be an excited anticipation about what God is going to do in this situation. And if it indeed be true that this subpoena was issued, that it's an attack on God's word, it's an attack on God's people, it's an attack on God's way, what's God going to do about it? You know, that's what we need to watch for. If the protection of the state is removed from the church, what's God going to do about it? If God allows the mayor of Houston and the city council of Houston to win, that's God's business. Our business is to ask God to show us how to respond in ways that line up with the gospel. 
that proclaim the gospel and our faith in the power of the God of the gospel. And I can't imagine that name-calling and fear and anger is consistent with the gospel. It isn't. Boldness, yes. Resolute, unwavering faithfulness, yes. A calm, blessed assurance, right? Yeah. Fear, panic, name-calling, no. Historians have also noted this, a little history lesson, that, that many things that are happening in America right now, and you've probably read this yourself, many things happening in America right now bear great similarity to the kinds of things that were happening, things that accompanied Hitler's rise to power in Germany. It's happening here in our country. But should, what should interest you and me this morning as believers in Christ As those who have God as our praise, they're not the political comparisons that can be drawn, but the church comparisons that should be drawn. Where was the church in Germany at that time? What were God's people doing in Germany at that time? Brave, fearless proclaimers of the gospel like Dietrich Bonhoeffer seemed to me to have been in the minority until it was too late. The church was sleepy, it was lethargic, it was drowsy and nonchalant, and it wouldn't shake off that haze to do anything about Hitler or to stop him or to proclaim the gospel. Listen, it's all about the church. It's always about the church because the church is God's instrument in this country and all around the world, specially designed by him to bring transformation to any culture, to point any culture in the direction of the ancient way of the one who created it and ordered it, pointing in the direction of the one who knows how we ought to best live our lives most effectively. So what is the health? What is the strength of the church? Take away government favor. Take away government protection for from us, and what do we have left? An all-powerful God. Take away our tax-exempt status. Oh, dear. You mean we have to pay taxes on all these buildings? Take away our tax-exempt status, and what do we have? A God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every land. That's what we have left. God asks his people in Micah chapter 4, verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? That's God asking his people. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, God, there is no king. Because in the day to which God is pointing, the human king will have been taken captive to Babylon. Yes, there is no king. So cry aloud. Cry aloud. If that king is your only hope, cry aloud. But God's question must ultimately be answered, no. Is there no king among you? Well, no, Lord. There is a king among us because we have you. And you are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God knew that his people were going to face dark days ahead of them because of their sin, because of their spiritual lethargy, because of their abandonment of God. They would be punished for their sins and sent into exile, but God would gather them again. He would reclaim them from that place and bring them home. And so listen to what God's plan is. After the darkness, in the last days, 
the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. God's mountain, the best mountain. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Can you imagine? Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. What an unbelievable picture. The nations of the world doing this. But that's what we'll be. And so once again, we have another picture that's consistent with all the rest in Scripture. A day pointing to the reign and rule of Christ. But along the path to this future may be dark days for the people of God. Brought about largely by our own sinful rebellion. Our own spiritual lethargy and nonchalance. And yet God is great. And God is good. And God is glorious and gracious. And he will redeem and restore his people. So you see, it's always about what God is doing among his people. How he's working in them and through them to bring about his purpose in the world. It's about what God is doing in the church. Listen, that's you and me. We're the church. Come on. We're up to bat right now. Who else is going to do it? It's us. It's our turn. So what are you doing as a faithful member of the church of Christ? Listen, you young people should be really excited. We complain about y'all all the time. This, this new generation, blah, 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 blah. We do it because we live with them so we know what it's like. But what kind of America, what kind of world is God calling you to live in and serve in and have him as your praise for the next 50 years? What must God think of you? What must God think of your strength and your ability to be faithful if he's calling you to be a witness for him in a world and in a nation that becomes more and more anti-Christian. What does he think of you? Is that not exciting? Why has he called you to live now? I'm going to make another confession. I've got one more episode to watch. Not in Mayberry. It's a 10-part series called Band of Brothers. Have you seen Band of Brothers? (laughs) So it dramatizes this, uh, uh, the Easy Company. They were part of the 101st Airborne Division, and it follows them from the time they did their training all the way through these major battles in Europe, all the way up to the end, I think, uh, in Japan. And so every time I finish one of those episodes, this is what I'm guilty of, the World War II generation... They were the greatest generation that ever lived. And it's all downhill now. That's what I think. You'd think it too if you saw that series. But shame on me. Shame on us. Because any generation that has God as their praise, any generation that has God as their God is going to be a great generation. I'm pounding the pulpit. I never do that, sorry. Lord, what are you going to do with us? That's why Moses in this passage takes the people here to the past. The past faithfulness of God over and over again is their hope for the present. What God has already done is just an example of what he can and will do as he fulfills this vision, the vision of Daniel 7, the vision of Philippians chapter 2. We're never going to reach the far end 
much less go beyond the goodness and the grace and the greatness of God. We're not going to get to the end of it, and we're never going to get beyond it. It is always there. There's another verse that I think about regularly, many times a week, probably because of the nature of what I do. You can turn there if you want. It's in the New Testament. It's so much easier to find. It's Acts chapter 13. It's on page 782 in your pew Bible if you want to look there. Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It says there, For when David had served God's purpose, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. Of course, is David, the king. He was rich, he was powerful, he was respected, he was feared. He was surrounded by people who were supposed to serve him and do what he wanted to have done. And yet, David was a servant to others on behalf of God. David lived his life to serve the purpose of God in his generation, and then he died. The great king that he was, he lived, he served, he died. He lived, he served, he died. What more can any of us do? But who did not die? Look in verse 37 of Acts chapter 13. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Jesus did not decay. Because Jesus did not remain dead. Jesus was raised again to life. Jesus is alive right now. Jesus reigns right now. And so God could ask you and me the same question that he asked the people back in Micah's day. Now why... Do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Is there no king in you? Yeah, there's a king among us, King Jesus. There's a king who lives inside of us. And all of those who place their faith in him for salvation. So why do we cry aloud? Woe is us. With great excitement. We should serve in our generation for the glory of God. David's purpose wasn't self-seeking. David's purpose was to serve God's purpose. That's not to say that David did not come up with his own ideas. David thought carefully about who he was and what he had and how he could use all of that for the glory of God. David came up with a great idea. He was king. He's living in this sumptuous palace that was his. And he said, wait a minute. I'm living like this. But the Ark of the Covenant is still in a tent. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to use all that I have to build a beautiful temple for the Lord. That's what David determined to do. But God said to David, no, David, wonderful idea. Your heart is in the right place to want to do this for me, but you're not the one to do it. Your son Solomon, he's going to do that after you. But David, I have a different plan for you, a bigger plan. A better plan. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You want to build a house for me? No, no. I'm going to build a house for you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Of course, we know the end of that story, don't we? Jesus, direct descendant of David, his great, 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 great grandfather. David's plan for God was great. A temple. 
but made with earthly goods that could and actually were destroyed. God's plan is better. A kingdom that will never pass away. And so with great excitement and great confidence, we can make plans right now to serve God and serve others. Because even when we have attempted our very best for God, He can override the disaster that might be our very best and what it might cause for something better. Something that we never dreamed of. Something that He will accomplish in fulfilling His purpose. And to know that God is using our lives in that way. That He'll lead, that He'll guide, that He'll override should give us confidence. And again, excitement. Lord, there's nothing to lose. I can serve you right now, right here in my generation. Jesus used the term generation, sometimes in a negative way. He used words like wicked, adulterous, evil, and perverse. Did you get that list? This is Jesus' generation. Wicked, adulterous, evil, perverse. Sound familiar? Wicked, adulterous, evil, perverse. And you know, what did Jesus do? He came to that generation, didn't he? And he served that generation. And he died for that generation as well as for all the others. As Christians, are we better at griping about our generation or serving it? Of course, there are problems in the world. Of course, there are evil people who do evil things. But God's call on our life is to serve this generation that he has determined we will be part of. And this is our call. To make God our praise, to become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That's Philippians 2.15. And I want to read it one more time. You and I, we are to become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That's what God has called us to do, to hold forth the word of life to our generation, not turn our backs on them or flee from them or let them die in darkness. We've got to be excited about when we are right now because of who we are. People, a church who have a king living among us, who have a king living in us. Let's pray. Father, your word should just inspire our hearts. Bring joy to our lives. Give us unbelievable confidence and a blessed assurance. Because we see in your word your story. We see in your word who you are, your character, your nature, how you act, what you do on behalf of your people. Father, I pray that we'd be encouraged by your story as we read how it has worked itself out and your plan has unfolded throughout history as you move us day by day closer and closer 
to the time that Christ will come, riding on clouds of glory, to the time that you, Jesus, will reign and rule forever and ever and ever. Father, I pray that as we look at your word and hear your story, that we will know and be confident that we are part of it. You don't slice us out, Lord, uh, as something special or different. So the church and the history that came before us and those that come after us are important. No, we are part of this story. We just take our place in this continuing story. But I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be faithful to your call on our lives, to, to hold out the word of life, even when our generation seems crooked and depraved and adulterous and, and wicked. Lord, help us serve it. Not abandon it, not complain about it, but to get after it, Lord, spreading among them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.